You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. To Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, which we left off about four Sundays or so ago over Christmas and New Year, and we're reading in Philippians chapter 2, page 1179, if you're using one of the church Bibles, Philippians uh, chapter 2, we're reading verses 12 to 18. And uh, this uh, section uh, closes a circle of Paul's teaching that began in chapter 1, verse uh, 27, now finishes here in chapter 2, verse 18. And as we go on, I think you'll see the connection as he, as Paul often does, he'll, he'll open up a theme and then uh, he'll develop it and then he'll bring it to a conclusion and then he'll move on to another theme. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure." Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I wonder if you've ever heard the name William Perkin, not William Perkins, who was a great uh, Elizabethan preacher, but Sir William Perkin. Sir William Perkin is famous, or as it may be, not at all famous, because he discovered the color mauve, or do you say mauve, either or either. And he did so when he was 18 years old. He discovered it by accident. He was a, a young experimental scientist, and uh, experiment he was doing, I presume, went slightly wrong, and lo and behold, this color appeared uh, that became iconic in the Victorian era. And uh, as a result, William Perkin not only received a knighthood, uh, but he made himself an absolute fortune. And the good thing about William Perkin was that he was a real Christian believer. And as he lay on his deathbed, uh, in his last hours, uh, last recorded words as far as I know, he recited uh, the wonderful words of the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. 
when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and pour contempt, contempt on all my pride, and said, proud? Who could think of being proud? And this is exactly the spirit that the Apostle Paul is seeking in his teaching here to engender in the Philippians and in us. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, which we were looking at the last occasions, is one of the most marvelous expressions of the work of Christ in the New Testament that focuses especially, of course, on the humility of Christ. Paul's concern is for the fellowship of the Philippian church, that they will be united together, that they will grow together, that they will have joy together. And he understands that one of the great keys to that is humble-mindedness. So he says, let this mind be in you, which you find in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't consider that something that would prevent him humbling himself, but humbled himself, took on our flesh, breathed our air, not only became a servant, but died, and died the cruel death of the cross. Quintessential expression of humility. And Paul has been teaching them it's the key to the unity of their fellowship. But in that humility, Paul has said in 5 to 11, the Lord Jesus also exercised another grace, a parallel grace. Humility and obedience always go hand in glove. No humility, no obedience. There can be no obedience without humility. And so Paul is now urging them, having urged them to the grace of humility, he's urging them to live their Christian lives as Christ lived in absolute obedience to the Father and absolute obedience to the voice of the Father in the Word of God. And it's interesting the way he puts this, isn't it? He says, now, when I was with you, you were obedient. But in a sense, it's even more important to me now that I'm not with you, that you should be even more obedient. Therefore, my beloved, verse 12, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Be obedient by working out your salvation in fear and trembling. Now, why does he say this? Why does he especially emphasize obedience in his absence? You know, sometimes ministers have this kind of experience. They're, they're away from their congregation uh, for a little time, perhaps a few weeks, they're on sabbatical, they come back, and some well-meaning member of the congregation thinking with spiritual confusion that they're going to encourage their minister says, we're so glad to have you back because when you left, everything fell apart, uh, to which the minister 
probably has too much wisdom to say, but his thinking, would you kindly remove the dagger that you've just stuck through my heart from within me? You couldn't more insult me and my ministry than telling me that when I wasn't there, things fell apart. But the truth is that they often do, and this is Paul's concern. Here is a church, and its existence and the conversion of its, its uh, oldest members are all related to the presence of the Apostle Paul. And his concern is when, when he is removed from the scene, will it, be like, will it be like taking the plug out of the bath, and everything simply rushes down the hole, as frequently has happened in the history of the church? Because for a significant individual, for, for someone to whom perhaps many of us owe a very great deal, we are willing to sink many of our differences. And it's often the case. You see this in churches. You see this in movements. When that significant individual is removed from the scene, then all the differences that have been sublimated for the sake of the greater good, the greater cause, the greater leader, they all come to the surface. And uh, people rush for leadership positions or bicker with one another. And the Apostle Paul is profoundly concerned here that if his ministry has really been an authentic ministry, then these Philippians will show even more obedience when he's absent than they did when he was present. I suppose somewhere in a book you could find the statistics, but someone once said to me, you know, when David was desperately sick, St. Peter's congregation actually grew. Now, you could draw two conclusions from that, couldn't you? <laughs> Bye-bye, David, we can do without you. Or a wiser conclusion. This is, this is the fruit of authentic gospel ministry, that it, it isn't that we are dependent on an individual, but that we've, through that individual, We've seen Christ, and our eyes are fixed on Christ, and uh, because our life is in Christ, we are even more obedient in the absence of that individual than we were in His presence. And of course, that touches on a point, isn't it, that sometimes our spiritual growth and, and or what we take to be our spiritual growth and our obedience is, is related to a superficial attachment to someone else. Um, you think of some of the kings of Israel uh, who, as long as there was somebody there with them, were faithful to the Lord. Think of Second Chronicles 24 and the story of Joash, who was faithful to the Lord so long as Jehoiada the priest was there. And then when Jehoiada the priest was removed from the scene, all the, all the weeds in the garden began to flourish. And the weed killer that uh, he had experienced through the priest's ministry, when that was removed, 
And so you can understand the Apostle Paul's pastoral concern that they should show the fruit of his ministry in their lives. As he says in Ephesians 4, that the fruit of this ministry will be that each part of the body will do its own work properly and build itself up in love and come to a maturity. And because of that maturity, will be able to make a real impact on the society around about it. And it's clear this is Paul's concern here, isn't it? That all of this burden has got a view to their witness in the society in which they live, that, that you may be in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation shining like lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud. And isn't that something uh, when the Lord says to Paul, Paul, is there anything that, you know, as you look back on your ministry, is there anything you feel proud of? And he, he would be able to point to the Philippians and say, you know, one of the things I'm proud of, Lord, is that they grew in my absence. That that, that really was the fruit of your Spirit's work in them that as he had promised them in chapter 1, that it was clear that you began the work, that you would complete the work, and that you would not only do that, but all the way from the beginning to the completion, you would sustain it and grow it. So, it's in this context, he has, he has two exhortations for the Philippians, two commands for them, and you'll see them fairly clearly. They're, they're in a, a complex sentence, but the commands are quite clear. The first is this. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And the second is, do everything without grumbling or questioning. First of all, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Now, if you were reading the New Testament with someone who was a, a nominal Christian or, or religious in some general sense, and you'd, you'd try to explain to them that salvation is a free gift, and, and they've said, no, we, we've, got to, we've got to earn our salvation. Heaven helps those who help themselves. That's, that's, what, the, that's what the Bible teaches. And, and as, you, as you read a passage like this with them, they might turn to you and say, well, I told you so. Here's Paul saying we've got to work for our salvation. And it doesn't take a great deal of intelligence to realize that that's the very reverse of what he's saying. He's, he's already said it's God who begins the work. He's not speaking here about working for our salvation. He's speaking here about working out the salvation that we've already been given. He's saying, now God has showered upon you spiritual blessings. Let's see them work out into your life. And that's, that's the, the big idea here. Um, and in a marvelous way, you notice, he gives them tremendous encouragement to do that. He says, because God is working in you by His Spirit internally, spiritually, yes, mysteriously. He's working in you both to provide the will to be obedient to Him and the power 
to be obedient to him. But what he wants is saved people doing saved things. God is not interested in in creating robots, zapping them with salvation so that they stiffen up and everything they do is the right thing to do. What he wants to do is create new people saved by his grace who actually live a saved kind of life, a transformed kind of life. Remember how he puts it beautifully in Ephesians chapter 2. He says that we are saved by grace through faith. And that isn't our own doing. It is the gift of God so that none of us can boast. None of us contributes to our salvation, so none of us can boast in our salvation. But then he goes on to emphasize that by saying, and remember, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the good works He has beforehand ordained that you should walk in them. And this is part of the mystery and the glory of the Christian life, that those who are saved by grace begin to have the affections of salvation, the desire to live a saved kind of life, and the power to do so. I mean, so much of Paul's teaching focuses on this, doesn't it? That because of all the spiritual blessings we have received in Jesus Christ, all the resources that we need to live in a way that pleases the Lord. And so he says, now, now work at this. Give your energy to it. This is your pleasure. And therefore, give all your resources day by day to, to as it were, solving the puzzle of each day. What is a saved life going to look like today? Here, here is somebody coming to me, and I simply don't get on with them. What would it look like if I lived in their presence as someone who had really been saved? Saved from bitterness, for example. And he goes on to speak about this. So it's as though he's saying, you've been saved, so be saved. You've been saved. I mean, this, in a sense, sums up so much of Paul's teaching. You've been saved. Why are you living as though you'd never been saved? And of course, one of his concerns is this. If you don't look as though you've been saved, there is a real question as to whether you have been saved, because saved people begin to look as though they've been saved. And if we don't look as though we've been saved, where is the evidence we really have been saved? And this is perhaps the reason why he says, you notice, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, because let him or her who thinks he or she stands take heed. 
lest they fall. Or perhaps one could put it this way, have you, have you any idea how precious the gift of salvation is? Have you any idea how every sinful desire, disposition, and deed in your life grieves the Holy Spirit? As it dawned on you, that if you sin as someone who is united to Christ, you're really saying to Jesus, come on, Jesus, loosen up a bit and come with me into my sin. Of course, there's a, the big question here, those of you who are familiar with the, the commentaries and the studies on uh, these verses, know that one of the questions uh, that's asked about this exhortation of Paul's work out your salvation and fear and trembling, because the, the imperative is in the plural, y'all, as they would say in the southern states, or all y'all, work out your salvation. Does Paul mean that we're to do it as individuals or that we're to do it as a community? Well, the answer is yes, isn't it? Yes and yes. We are to do it as individuals, but we don't live as individuals. We live in this community, and we can only work out our salvation as community when each part is doing its work properly, as he says in Ephesians chapter 4. So, so it's both. Um, but we do this in fear and trembling, not in terror, but in fear and trembling for for this reason, because we realize what a precious gift salvation is. Um, think about it this way. Uh, I wonder if uh, uh, any of you get fed up seeing these adverts in certain papers for uh, Patek Philippe watches. Patek and Philippe were two fellows who went to Geneva, I think, in the 19th century, and they were, they were watchmakers. Those of you who have been to Geneva know that if you pass by Patek Philippe or some of those other watch shops, there are no prices in the windows. And yes, you're right. That means that if you go in and ask what the watch costs, you, you, you certainly can't afford it. And their tagline is this, you never actually own a Patek Philippe watch you simply keep it for the next generation. And it, it's, it's subliminally saying, have you, have you any idea how precious these watches are? Actually, I looked up their website to see exactly how precious they are. They don't even have the prices on the website. <laughs> but I did, you'll be interested to know, find the price of a Grand Complications Blue you can have a Patek Philippe Grand Complications blue, notice not green, but blue, for £113,106. Now, I advise you against this because it'll not just be the blue that will complicate your life, but your spouse will complicate your life, not to mention your bank manager, but you, 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 see, you see what they're saying you know, these, these watches are so expensive, so precious, that you feel you don't, 
really own it. You just, you care for it, and you pass it on to the next generation. And in a way, Paul says the same about the church, doesn't he? It is so precious. How precious? 106,000? It cost the blood of God's Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, listen, friends, you are God's temple. And whoever destroys God's temple, God will destroy. Because His temple, the church, is hit the apple of his eye. It's the most precious possession he has in this world. It's worth a million Patek Philippe's to him. He gave his son for the church. And so he says, we, we work this out in our fellowship, in, and, and, and we have a, a certain sense of fear and trembling because of the sheer awe of the privilege. And, and sadly, sometimes, I'm not just speaking as an old man, I think this is actually true whether you're young or old, sadly, the, the church in the contemporary world in the West has lost sight of that, hasn't it? The fear and trembling. You see, you cannot, you cannot simultaneously have a sense of the sheer privilege of belonging to this people that Jesus Christ has purchased at the price of His own blood, and not have a sense of fear and trembling, not have a sense of awe, not have a sense of the sheer wonder. Remember how this was true of the early church? We're told that great awe came upon the people. And this is what Paul is saying. Um, and, and this is, you know, isn't it true that one of, the, one of the greatest sins of our contemporary popular culture is to be serious, and especially serious about the Christian faith? Because people are frightened of awe. They are frightened of the fear of God, and so they have to belittle it and belittle those who have it. But Paul is saying, you, you, can, you can be a member of a living church and, and, and treat that privilege with, with a sense of indifference, casualness, because this is the, this is the community for which Jesus Christ died. And so there is this, do you remember the old uh, gospel spiritual? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. And this is what he's saying. When the price, the purchase price of my life, the purchase price of the church fellowship to which I belong dawns on me, and of course, I want to work out my salvation in fear and trembling with this great encouragement that God is at work in me, that He will bring to completion the work which in His goodness He began. 
that God is at work in St. Peter's. And isn't that part of our privilege? Isn't it? Have any of you ever been in a church where, as far as you could see, there has never been any evidence that God is at work? No one ever coming to faith. No sense of exaltation in the praise. No sense of access in prayer. No sense of of awe in the ministry of God's Word. No sense of joy in the fellowship. No sense of the dynamic of mutual affection and love. How terrible. But to be part of a family, a Christian fellowship, where all of those things are true. Oh, says Paul, come on now. Think of the work that God began in you. Think of the way He's continuing it among you. And work that salvation out in your fellowship as you do in your own lives, in fear and trembling. So there's a general exhortation, and it's, it's, a, it's a hugely positive exhortation to work out our salvation. But then there's a second exhortation that, that is twinned with it. He says, not only work out your salvation in fear and trembling, but do all things, verse 14, without grumbling or questioning. All things, not just some things, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Now, the word Paul uses here, uh, gongusmos, um, the scholars tell us, and perhaps if you're a native Greek speaker, you already know this, is an onomatopoeic word. You know onomatopoeia, difficult to spell, but easy to understand. Onomatopoeic words are words that sound like what they mean. So, we speak about the moaning of the wind, and so on and so forth. And uh, it's just, <laughs> you see? Um, you know, who invented the word tittle-tattle? I mean, what, what do those words mean, tittle-tattle? But, but it expresses exactly what happens, tittle-tattle, little things moving along, one person to another, like a disease. And Paul uses it only once uh, here in this passage. And it's certain, I think, I think it's certain that he's not just kind of plucking this word out of the, the thin air, but he's, he's thinking because he's so well read in the Old Testament Scriptures. He's thinking of the way in which this word appears in the narrative of the Exodus in his, in his Greek Old Testament. You remember how the Lord redeemed His people out of their bondage in Egypt, and they're making their way through the wilderness. What do they begin to do? Gongusmos is what they begin to do. And do you remember what they begin to say? So, look, you know, when we were in Egypt, we had meat and fish, we had cucumbers, we had melons, we had leeks, we had garlic. We eat fantastic, we had garlic. And what do we get here? We just get this manna stuff. And here God had, had acted in 
superlative supernatural power and delivered them from their terrible bondage, their wicked and cruel and painful bondage. They were not only slaves, they were beaten down as slaves. They wanted to murder every boy child that was born. Now they begin to and you see, whenever, whenever there's that grumbling, um, two things always happen. First of all, the past is always viewed through rose-colored spectacles, isn't it? Oh, it was so good then. Psst, 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 psst. It's not like, you know, things aren't what they used to be. Well, the older you get, the bigger the temptation that is, isn't it? Because there's so much used to be. And the other thing that happens is not only do you look at the past through rose-colored spectacles, but you look at the present through jaundiced eyes. You know what it's like when you're sick? Everything in the world's wrong when you're sick, isn't it? And it hardly ever crosses your mind. Hey, it's all in here. My sickness has, has transformed my view of everything. And when the Spirit takes hold of you as a Christian in a fellowship, that's exactly what it does. Exactly what it does. Things aren't what they used to be. Who sang that song sometime in the past? It can't be that long ago. Max Bygraves, goodness. And the other thing is, nothing's right. You ever been in a church where, I'm not asking for volunteers to give testimonies to the agonies of the past, but that's what happens, isn't it? It's all, it was, you know, in the past it was like this. And it's all gongusma, gong, 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 you see, under the surface, spreads around, and the, the sickness catches I know there's another thing about grumbling. It's not adultery. And it's not theft. But it is, isn't it? It's adultery in your relationship to the Lord who governs everything in His providence. And it's theft of the glory that the Lord should be having from, from your life. But it's, you know, it's, it's one of those sins that we are always able to justify ourselves in committing because the fault is in the other person. Now, dear friends, there may be a fault in the other person, and I'm sure when you put us all together, there are plenty of faults to grumble about in St. Peter's. Do you remember Jesus' illustration? I mean, Jesus' illustration is so kind of fantastic. It's, it, you know, you, you, can, you can pass by the words. You know, here I, he, I come into the church and there is, there is a huge wooden plank sticking out of my eye. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, let me, let me refer to David because he's common property to us all. I, I go up to David because I, I've noticed there's, you know, it's, it's just something not quite right. I go to David, let me get that speck out of your eye, David, my friend. Bang, bang, bang. 
And uh, what do I think? I think I'm doing the right thing. And it's the same when I'm, I'm grumbling. It's a justifiable sin because that's wrong. And what, what Paul is saying here can have a mighty effect on our lives. Could it even be that what Paul is saying is this? Grumbling must never proceed out of my, out of my mouth. And whenever I see the seed of it beginning to flourish in the weeds of the garden of my heart, I need to pour the weed killer of the gospel on it because I am to do everything without grumbling and complaining. Let me retranslate that. You should never do anything. I should never do anything with grumbling and complaining. Staggering, isn't it? And you see, when we, now we've had the, the second exhortation, the first exhortation begins to take on a different significance, doesn't it? Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. You know, I look into my heart and I think about the number of things I'm crumbling about. And how I'm, I'm then justifying myself for grumbling because, because she's at fault, he's at fault, the church is at fault, the world's at fault. And at the end of the day, I'm really saying God is at fault. Because God is working His purposes out in every circumstance of my life. What a, what a beautiful thing it is, and what a testimony, and this is what Paul is coming to, isn't it? What a testimony it is when a Christian goes through hard things. And even non-Christians are able to say, you know, for all that he went through, for all that she went through, I never heard a, a word of complaint about what others had done to him or about the God they said they trusted. You see, that's not, that's not human. That's God working in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. And you'll notice that Paul gives them reasons, motives for living this way. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast or holding out the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. You see what he's talking about? He's talking about the, the way in which when we work out salvation, and when that salvation works out into the details of our lives so that we've, we've given up grumbling and complaining, and we're living in the reverse, thankfulness, submissiveness, obedience, humility, that's what gives power to our witness. It's, it's that which makes us different from the world in which we live. It's, it's crooked and perverse. It is twisted. But you see, here is a Christian who is, who is unmixed. That's the idea Paul is 
is using, who is uh, just wholly the Lord's, living sweetly in contentment with whatever the Lord might send, living as a, as a child of God without blemish. It's, um, it's all going to create this question in the minds of those who watch the church and watch the individual Christian. What kind of family did they come from that makes them so different from the family to which I belong? And you see, the, the kicker with Paul is, you know, in a sense, we'd all be able to sit back and relax if he said, now what you really need to do is to be a, is to be a preacher who draws 100,000 people to listen to him. But, but he doesn't say that. Um, he says, no, it's in, the, it's in the small things. Since the devil is in the details, let the Lord be in the details. It's this sweet, humble, Christian living contentment, submissiveness to the Lord, thankfulness for all the grace and gifts that He's given to us, feeling something of the, 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 the sheer privilege in a crooked world, in a, in a world of social dysfunction and family dysfunction, the sheer privilege of belonging to a family where things are becoming right, where fellowship is becoming pure. He's saying, that's what, I, that's what I long for. Because then, he says, on the day of Christ, I may be proud. <laughs> proud? Well, in a kind of humble way. What does he mean? Not that I'll boast in myself. Jesus, did you see what I did in Philippi? But that I may be proud that what Jesus did through me was not in vain, and therefore my labor is not in vain. So he says, even if it comes to it, even if the sacrifices that you make, notice he speaks about this, the offering of your faith, even if the sacrifices you make have to be accomplished by my life being poured out as a libation, a, a drink offering to the Lord, the sacrifices you have, my accompanying sacrifice of pouring out my life as a libation, then I'll be able to rejoice, and you'll be able to rejoice, and we'll be able to rejoice together. So, when grumbling prevails, unity disintegrates, power of witness is destroyed, and joy begins to evaporate. Perhaps in the light of what Paul has said in verses 5 to 11, we can think of it like this, in a, in a simple personal way, today, tonight, tomorrow when I get up, tomorrow when things seem to go wrong all around me, tomorrow when I'm tempted to mutter and complain, tonight perhaps, when I go home, don't know what kind of day you've had in St. Peter's today. Think about it this way. Where would I be if Jesus had complained 
about everything and everybody about whom he has had and still has a perfect right to complain. And it does rather seem from what we know of Jesus in the New Testament, doesn't it? That since he went to heaven, there has never been a moment when he has turned to his father and said, I am fed up with these people you gave me. I'm going to start bad-mouthing them to the angels. No, if you know, he loved you and gave himself for you. Never complains about you. Then, how much more, Paul is saying, should we work out our salvation in fear and trembling and do everything without murmuring and complaining? May we be able to look to Christ in that way during this week. Let's pray together. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the way in which You have purchased the church, the whole church, church for which we were praying tonight throughout the world, these masses of people who in every place call on the name of the Lord, the church in every age, and our church, St. Peter's, and our lives, how You have purchased our lives with the shed blood of Your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray as we lift our eyes to Him who humbled Himself and became obedient to death, that You will work in us as You've promised to do day by day, a like humility and a similar obedience, and grant us much grace and help as You work in us by Your Spirit, that tomorrow we may seek to do everything without grumbling or complaining, and so work that right into our hearts that in every circumstance, in every providence, we will look to Your hand and know that You work everything together for the good of those who love You, and to see in Your kind hand the wonder of your grace to us in Jesus Christ and your gift to us of the Holy Spirit, that we may live in a way that pleases you, that blesses our fellow believers and enables us individually and together to hold out the word of life in the crooked generation in which we live, that others may see and seek and be found by and find the Savior Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk for information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.